and welcome to The Strange Cast. On our show, we investigate the unsolved, unsettling, and undertold stories of the world. I have a question for you. Have you ever heard a story so shocking, so blood-chilling, it lingered in your bones? Did you check under the bed in your hotel room because a friend told you a body was found in a local hotel? Or maybe you heard the old story of the young babysitter murdered on a dark and stormy night. Did you check every room of the house that you were watching your little siblings in once the kids fell asleep? Did it make you feel any safer? I wonder if you ever heard the story of a young couple killed on Lover's Lane. When your high school crush asked you to go to Makeout Point, did you turn them down because you were afraid of what waited in the dark, deep woods? Have you ever heard of an arcade game made to brainwash teens, causing illness and hallucinations? Did you peek around the corners of Pac-Man cabinets looking for secret agents surveilling you? While all of these urban legends have made the rounds for generations, what I'm going to tell you is absolutely true. It may surprise you to learn that each of these stories has a basis in fact. While the game of telephone from one gossipy teen to a younger kid might have caused them to morph and change into the campfire hallmarks we recognize today, every tall tale I mentioned was once just a news story. I hope you're ready for a few new reasons to look over your shoulder or decline an invitation out into the cold black night. Before we begin our first story, I want to make something clear. While many of us gravitate to an interest in true crime, these are real victims we're talking about. Each of the names I'll mention was once a living person with a vibrant life and left a grieving family behind once the crime we'll be speaking of occurred. I also want to warn you that this episode may have some unsettling or shocking content. Remember that these stories are of true urban legends. This means that if the legend is scary enough to keep people awake at night, the true story is, in many cases, far more heinous. It's your choice if you'd like to listen further, and I do hope you will because each of these victims deserves to have their story known. But I also want to make it clear that this is more than just a list of random names to fill out an episode. With that content warning established, our first story is the legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. We've all heard stories of the young teenager home alone for the evening, caring for a younger sibling or family friend. From 1977's film, The Sitter, to 2006's When a Stranger Calls, the trope of a young girl 
Getting a call from inside the house to warn her of imminent danger has chilled generations. This legend, however, has an origin in truth. As far as we know, the phone call seems like an embellishment added over time. But on the evening of March 18, 1950, a girl in danger while babysitting all alone was all too real for Janet Christman. Janet was 13, an eighth grader at Jefferson Junior High, and taking babysitting jobs from local families to save up for a burgundy Easter suit she'd had her eye on. Her family owned Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse, a staple in Columbia, Missouri. The day Janet was killed started like any usual Saturday. She'd been asked to babysit for Ed and Ann Romack that evening and watch their three-year-old Gregory while they played cards with some friends. Ann was pregnant and excited for the chance to attend a party before the new baby came. Janet arrived at 7.30 that evening to the Romack home, a secluded house on a rural route. The parents talked with Janet before leaving. Anne let her know that Gregory liked to sleep with the radio on, and Ed told Janet to turn on the porch light if anyone came knocking. He also showed her how to use his shotgun and left it by the front door. The parents left and the night got colder. A storm caused rain and sleet to barrel down on the muddy earth. An ugly night for an ugly crime. At 10.30, Boone County Sheriff's Department Officer Ray McCowan received a panicked phone call. All that could be deciphered were a woman's screams and her voice begging, come quick, before the line went dead. Soon after, Anne called home to check on Janet. There was no answer. Anne assumed the children were both asleep, and the Romax stayed with their friends until around 1.15. At 1.35, the couple returned home. Ed immediately knew something was amiss. The door was unlocked, the porch light on, and all the blinds open. They pushed the door open to a gruesome tragedy. Janet had been murdered. The investigation would show that she was sexually assaulted. The attacker then struck her in the head with a blunt object and stabbed her multiple times with a mechanical pencil. When that wasn't sufficient, he strangled her with a cord cut from an electric iron. All of this took place while baby Gregory slept silently upstairs. He was found safe and sound by his parents, entirely unaware of the monstrous occurrences that took place in the home that evening. The phone was left dangling from the hook after Janet's call for help. She put up a fight. There were signs of a struggle through the house and near the back door, showing Janet had attempted to flee. As the investigation proceeded, police were led to believe the attacker broke in through a shattered side window. There were muddy footprints all over the home, 
a garden hoe discarded near the pointed entry, and mud on the piano next to the window. While Janet's crime remains unsolved, there is a plethora of circumstantial evidence regarding one man. Robert Mueller was a former army captain and had been friends with Ed since high school. He was 27, often seen carrying a mechanical pencil in his front shirt pocket and known for his inappropriate comments about his desire to deflower virgin women. He'd often talked about young Janet's body and her recent physical development. He also frequently made advances on Ed's wife, including on the day before the attack. Anne said of Robert, he doesn't use words, he uses his hands. The morning of Janet's death, Mueller had asked her if she would babysit his children so he could go to a party, the same party that the Romax were attending. Janet let him know she was already going to babysit for Ed and Anne that night, as they'd met many times before in the Romax home. During the party, after a couple hours, Mueller excused himself. He said he needed to run home and meet his family's doctor about his son. Braving the fierce storm, Robert returned to the party two hours later. The doctor, in the following investigation, said he never attended the Mueller home that night. The following morning, before the news was reported in the local papers, Ed received a call from Robert asking if he needed any help cleaning up all the blood in the home, again, before the crime had been reported to anyone other than local authorities. Robert and Ed also spoke about the specifics of the crime as the investigation unfolded. When Ed explained the police had believed the killer entered the home by breaking the side window with a garden hoe and climbing in, Robert said that would be too loud. He said it would be much easier to just show up and say, Ed sent me here to get poker chips. With all of this circumstantial evidence, why didn't Robert end up behind bars for this crime? Well, in May 1950, rather than get a warrant, local authorities took Mueller to a farmhouse outside of town for an overnight interrogation. After the interrogation, Robert was brought to the state capitol to complete a polygraph test, which he ultimately passed. Based on the plethora of circumstantial evidence, Judge W. M. Dinwiddle arranged a grand jury to investigate. However, due to incompetence by the investigators, Mueller was never charged. While we often imagine a stranger in the night attacking the young babysitter on her own, the reality of the story is the danger often lies in the devil you know. Our next urban legend is one long bewildering those far from home in an unfamiliar motel room. A young couple walks into their suite, noticing immediately an odd smell. They check the mini-fridge, the bathroom, 
there's no explanation. Eventually, they just decide it was a cheap enough stay that they shouldn't expect quality. After the first night, the smell seems worse. When housekeeping comes, they ask if anything can be done. They contact the manager, who looks over the room and says it may just be the old ventilation system. They'll check into it as soon as possible. By the third day, the stench is unbearable. The couple checks the vents behind the cabinets everywhere they can to discover what could be ruining their vacation. Finally, in desperation, they flip over the mattress. To their horror, underneath is a body, decaying and rotted, released with a cloud of the awful scent that's been lingering in their noses for days. Surely this can't be based on a true story, right? Correct. It's not based on a real occurrence. It's based on several. On July 10th, 2003, at the Capri Motel in Kansas City, a man spent three nights in his room before finding that his stay included a guest under his mattress. The identity of the body is not known. On June 10th, 1999, a German couple traveling in Atlantic City found the body of 64-year-old Saul Hernandez in their room at the Burgundy Motor City Inn. In July 1996, a woman's body was found under a bed at a travel lodge in Pasadena, California. And in 1994, Fort Lauderdale, Florida had two bodies found in hotel rooms. March brought forth 24-year-old Josefina Martinez, and with August came 47-year-old Brian Gregory. In 1989, Virginia killer Jerry Lee Dunbar disposed of two of his victims in hotel rooms. One was in May. 27-year-old Deirdre Smith was found in a crawl space under the floor in a hotel on Route 1. Following that, Another victim of Jerry, 29-year-old Marilyn Graham, was found under a bed at the Alexandria Econo Lodge. Perhaps the longest known case of a body under the bed is that of Sony Millbrook from Memphis, Tennessee. Sony went missing on January 27, 2010, when it was reported she hadn't picked up her children from school. 47 days later, her body was discovered inside the bed frame of a room that had been cleaned and rented several times in the weeks since her disappearance. While many of these murders remain unsolved, if you ever find yourself in a cheap motel with a foul scent, maybe take a moment to check under the mattress. Our third tale tonight is infamous. A couple goes out late at night to a lover's lane. Kids in love, 
ready to have some fun. But does danger lurk in the dark trees and gravel roads they're counting on to hide them from prying eyes? Everyone's heard some version of this story, but one town knows firsthand the danger that awaits under the stars. Texarkana, Texas, on the border of Texas and Arkansas, was subject to a string of slayings known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. It began on the evening of February 22, 1946. Jimmy Hollis, 25, and Mary Jean Luray, 19, went to the Lover's Lane right on the state border. Soon into their date, a man blinded them with a flashlight through their car window and demanded Jimmy Hollis remove his pants. He beat Hollis so savagely that a portion of his skull was shattered, causing him to slip into a coma for days following the attack. Luray ran from the car. Many accounts say the attacker ordered her to. She was caught and sexually assaulted by the assailant. A man wearing a cloth bag over his head with eye holes cut out. The young couple's lives were spared by the headlights from an oncoming car, which scared the attacker away. Perhaps due to the overall stress of the encounter, the couple was not able to provide any further conclusive description. In the same lover's lane, sometime after the first attack, Richard Griffin, 29, and Polly Ann Moore, 17, were found with gunshot wounds in the back of the head. Police suspected, due to the amount of blood on the ground, that the pair were killed outside the vehicle and put back in by the murderer as an attempt to stage the scene that would be found the following morning. The third killing prompted a townwide panic. After Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were found shot a voluntary curfew was instated. This and the involvement of the Texas Rangers weren't enough to keep Texarkana safe. On May 3rd, Virgil Stark was at home reading a newspaper in his living room when he was shot through the window and killed instantly. When his wife Katie rushed to help, she was shot in the face twice but successfully fled to the safety of a neighbor's house. The murderer dropped a red-handled flashlight at the scene of the Stark attack, and the local newspaper spread the photo of the flashlight along with the murderer's new moniker, the Phantom Killer. While the criminal, who kept a town in peril for weeks, was never caught, he was immortalized in both legend and film. The 1976 thriller, The Town Who Dreaded Sundown, focuses on dramatizations of the murders and is shown every Halloween in Texarkana at the same lover's lane where the crimes took place. Our last story is, unlike the others, not all doom and gloom. 
Many may have gone their whole lives unaware of this tale. But perhaps, if you're listening in the Pacific Northwest and inclined to play video games every now and then, you've heard of the arcade game Polybius. In 1981, Portland, Oregon, the story goes, teens flocked to arcades to spend their hard-earned allowance on pizza and tokens. One game had intense graphics with rapidly revolving kaleidoscope-like puzzles. It was addictive. Kids couldn't quit coming back to it, causing lines throughout the arcades, weaving in between other machines. They also suffered for their love of the game. With psychoactive effects, amnesia, night terrors, and insomnia. Some even reported hallucinations and seeing subliminal messages among the pixels. The scariest part were the cabinet's mechanics. Men in black. Yes, the kind with dark suits and sunglasses regularly checked the machines. Until eventually later that year, all the Polybius cabinets in the city disappeared. Surely this is a fantasy. Men in black installing and removing a game with subliminal messages aimed at teens? Especially a video game causing such intense illness? Well, part of this legend is just gossip. But again, we find a basis in truth. Two players fell ill in a Portland arcade in the same day in November 1981. Brian Morrow collapsed with a migraine after playing Tempest, and Dennis Hernandez suffered an intense stomachache after playing Asteroids for 28 hours and 15 minutes in an attempt to beat the world record. A couple kids getting sick might start a local legend, sure, but what about the men in black? Well, a short 10 days later, after a year of surveillance, the FBI raided several arcades in the area suspected of facilitating gambling through rigged machines. The owner admitted to setting up the cabinets to pay money instead of points. And the FBI continually monitored the area, regularly checking machines for signs of tampering. Unannounced walkthroughs became common in the city, and in 1981 alone, there were seven raids conducted by the FBI, and a total of 52 arrests. Even though our original urban legend takes place in 1981 Portland, it's also on record that in Seattle, Washington in 1982, the FBI ran a seven-month-long sting operation in an arcade owned by them called Games People Play. This operation resulted in the arrest of 25 people for intent to sell stolen property, discovered through cameras installed in the cabinets. They recovered over $400,000 of stolen goods, around $1.1 million today. So here we have explanations for a few portions of the story sick teens and government agents, 
But what about the unique gameplay and the name Polybius? Well, the game was initially reported on a website called coinop.org, indicating a copyright date of 1981, a date that can't be verified through official records associated with the name Polybius. The name itself is a small hint to the origin of the story. Being the name of a Greek historian born in Arcadia. Some allege the man responsible is Stephen Roach, who claimed to have been on the development team who released the game. He said when kids started getting sick, Polybius was pulled from arcades. Others say, as there's no clear history or actual photos of the game, that a similar arcade classic called Cube Quest conjured up the fiction of geometric shapes spinning on a screen being too intense of a visual experience for the average player. While we don't know if Polybius ever existed, facsimiles exist today where you can get, well, part of the full experience. While we have the technology to replicate the stories of tilting kaleidoscopic visuals, we don't have a way to imitate a secret agent peeking over your shoulder or a camera embedded in your machine watching your every move. Well, that is, unless you believe the rumors online. Four urban legends with one thing in common. They all began as truth. As we play the game of telephone with gossip from one friend to another, about our sister's boyfriend's cousin or the ex-lover you swear lived next door to the victim. What was once the tale of a grieving family, a lost soul, or even just a teen with a migraine, shifts into a tale of thrills and chills to spin around campfires and slumber parties. I could spend a lifetime, as many have, asking why it is that people like to be scared or scare others. But I'd rather spend my time here offering you a grim reminder. Usually, the truth is stranger and even scarier than fiction. This podcast was made using Anchor, a free podcast recording, editing, and posting app. They're not a sponsor, but I'm an idiot when it comes to sound design, and there's no way I could have made this podcast without their help. The Strange Cast is written, read, and designed by Andrea Sandvig. You can follow the show at StrangeCastPod on Twitter and email thoughts, corrections, listener stories, and show ideas to strangecastpod at gmail.com. We're also now on Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com slash thestrangecast. We're a new podcast, so we'd really appreciate it if you'd support us by sharing an episode with a friend. Thank you, and stay strange.